Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. We're back with our like regular programming, but Mm -hmm. it's also part two of the Ukraine and Russia explainer series we have for you guys. So... Get ready for some more of your quote-unquote stupid questions being answered with us because we got you. Uh, yes, we do. And just to like give a little refresh, like even if like, so you bop into this episode first because it's like the newer one. So you're like, wait, where am I? Like, should I go backtrack? So this particular episode is more focused on the economic lens. So think like sanctions, oil, pipeline in Germany, like all of that stuff. Think this episode. If you're like, okay, alliances, military intervention, the EU, NATO, that's episode part one. Honestly, I mean, look, they're like, they're BFFs. They're sister series. They go mm-hmm. hand in hand. You're going to want to listen to both. So if you're listening to this one, you have to listen to the other one, then, you know, maybe do a little flip flop, whatever. Have a question. Okay. Is that a wafer cookie or a joint in your hand? <laughs> <laughs> It's a wafer cookie. Okay, wait, guys, guys, guys. Oh my God, wait. Trader Joe's, obviously the goat, like we love it. And they have this new thing. Okay, I'm showing Maddie. It is like little, it kind of looks, it's like a Dunkaroos concept, right? So Ooh. instead of the Dunkaroos cookies, it's these, the wafer things where they're like rolled up. Well, I need you to pull up the story that you showed me yesterday mm. immediately. Okay, hold on, sorry. Give me Bite breaks. We have a story for you guys. So this is like my favorite thing ever. And it gives me like insurrection vibes. Now I know that sentence sounds like a weird back to back, but bear with me. I, 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 I don't know where this is going actually. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm confused. So, now you're like, what's happening? So there's reports that are coming out that are saying that women in Ukraine are responding to Russian soldiers on Tinder. We're like looking for matches, like nothing like trying to get your bone on while in the middle of an invasion. Like I, men, I do not respect them. And let me just put that back out there. So anyways. <laughs> You're not gonna wanna so, hear my comments. I'm so scared. Like I'm genuinely- really controversial <laughs> Okay, well, let me, let me just finish getting the background and then you can like let, <laughs> let this one rip. But yeah. basically, so like, they're getting like location details. And why I'm saying that it gives me like insurrection vibes. Again, hold, pause, no one kill me. Is that DC women kind of did the same thing with all of the people that stormed the Capitol and being like, OMG, like, what are you here during, you know, this weekend for? Blah, 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 blah. And these morons would freaking tell them. So, mm-hmm. I love, um, that. love that. It's giving also totally different theme but like next gen registering voters on dating apps you know i just love 
dating apps being used in, in the political space. Honestly, I didn't know that it was like for a strategic purpose. I thought that, like the story was just like Russian soldiers are trying to get at Ukrainian women. And I didn't want to go like, I didn't want to say too much, but I just. <laughs> I'm so just, scared. No, I was just going to say like, it just does <laughs> definitely feeds into a bit of <laughs> fantasy. <laughs> I have, and I'm just going to leave it there. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave go. the rest of your imagination. <laughs> Guys, I'm looking at Maddie like she has ten heads. So I have tears. Anyways, Maddie's fantasies aside. Let's move on to some housekeeping before we get into this episode because housekeeping. we need to sweep it up a little bit and remind you guys about our New York City event. If you are in New York City and you like yoga, or maybe you don't like yoga, but you do want to learn more about politics in the midterm elections, you should come to our event on March 12th, Y7, do some hot yoga, and learn from our incredible pla- panel about these midterm elections and what you need to be paying attention to. I mean, what could be better? Mm-hmm. Get your tickets well, um, in the episode description, or you can go to girlinthegup.com slash events. Other thing is, if you're looking for a summer internship and you can get college credit, then you should go to girlinthegup.com slash careers and read about our social media marketing and research internship and shoot us an email with your resume and all the things, and we would love to chat. If you are not looking for an internship, but you would like to be a part of the Girl in the Gov team and the Girl in the Gov community, you can join our brand ambassador program where we provide resume boosters, networking opportunities in the political space, and just a political community of amazing women. Then come on over. Sign up. Come there's on no requirements. over, baby. There's no requirements. Just fun. Also, please... If you have not yet and you've been listening to the show and you have not gone to get your four bottles of wine for twenty nine ninety five, like I don't know how we can be friends at this point. <laughs> like that's a deal, you guys. You Literally. Get, they have every wine you could possibly think of from Pinots to Rosé to Whites, whatever you like, they got it. And you can get four of those bottles for twenty nine ninety five. It's that easy. And they come so straight to your doorstep. So go check them out. Also linked in this episode description. Mm-hmm. Make sure you use the link that's like in our description. And I will say this is I will be putting my next new favorite wine from them on our story. If you don't see it, like please DM us and I will like send it to you. It's literally like I'm not gonna get up from my seat right now to get the name, but I will post it. Like it took a cute pic when I was drinking it on Saturday. So you know I'm ready. I'm ready to share the deets. Yeah, I already finished all my <sighs> bottles of wine, so I probably need to order some more. Those are the housekeeping items, and I think we're ready for part two of our Ukraine and Russia explainer with our second incredible guest. We are. We are at the ready, and this guest is Dr. Margarita Balmacita. She is an associate at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute and a professor at Seton Hall University, their School of Diplomacy and International Relations. She is highly well-versed in the dynamics between Ukraine, Russia, Europe, and especially those that fit within the economic conversation. So we thought, hey, let's cover this from a whole new dynamic. Us. Let's go. Boom. Let's Let's get it. Wow. That's how we pitch people. Anyways, moving, moving right along. Without further ado, here is Dr. Balamacita. All right. Well, let's get into it. You are an associate at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute and also a professor at Seton Hall, which is near where I grew up, actually. So love to see Ooh, that. Where did you grow up? A summit. 
Beautiful yeah, place. around the corner. <laughs> but we do want to talk about your expertise and your work. Can you give us a little bit of a background on, you know, what you've studied, what your research is about, all of that jazz? Sure. And try to see if I can find the short, short, shortest way to do it. So I was born <laughs> in Argentina. My mother is, and my father was Argentinian. Unfortunately, he died last year. And since very crazy combination of the circumstances, without having any Slavic blood in my family, I became enmeshed in this multi-generational friendship with a Russian family. But actually, it was a Russian family from Harbin in China. Harbin was like an international city in China. In any case, to make the story short, I had always had a kind of interest in Russia and the Soviet Union. When I came to the continental U.S. when I was 16, somehow I got the opportunity to start learning Russian. I took a bus from Baltimore, Maryland, where Johns Hopkins University was located, to Oakland, California, did a summer program at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. I thought that I had learned Russian in two months. Of course, it was not true, but I thought I had. (laughs) And everything started to go downhill from there, because since then, and that was a long time ago, and not only I became fluent in Russian very quickly, because I was totally crazy about it. Later, I learned other languages of the region, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Hungarian. And that would be my life. It's like all history through another crazy combination of events. And after I finished my PhD, I was trying to look for a postdoc. It was very hard, in part because, sad to say, many of the people at the place where I did my PhD, Princeton University, did not really think of someone like me, like postdoc material, because I didn't look like them. And I, eventually I did get money for a postdoc from, the, from a Ford Foundation, a postdoctoral fellowship for minorities. I had two options, to go to the UK or to go to Harvard. The person who was then the director of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute sent me the shortest letter I have received in my life that simply <laughs> said, we hope you can come. And I went there with the money from the Ford Foundation Fellowship that was in 1996. And I have managed to stay as an associate, which is, I'm not a staff member, I'm a kind of research guest. And I combined that with my work at Seton Hall University, so I have probably the best of both worlds. Wow, what a story. That's crazy. Also, anyone who can learn like a bunch of languages like that, I'm always in awe of like, wow. Can you also explain like what the Harvard Ukrainian uh, Research Institute does and what really your day to day is like? Absolutely. So the Harvard Research Institute was created, if I remember correctly, in 1971. And uh, it was created uh, with money raised from the grassroots by many, many Ukrainian American students. Of course, I was not Part of this, I was just a, a very small kid then, just, just to clarify, who believed in the middle of the Cold War, in the middle of a situation where Ukraine had only limited ability to study its own history because of the way things were during the Soviet Union. It was important that there was a space for the study of Ukraine, for Ukrainian history. They raised money and went house to house raising money and they created a chair of Ukrainian studies and then an entire institute at Harvard University. So basically in the world, this institute, there is another institute in Canada, uh, but I would say that Harvard's institute is the largest, the most significant. Until very recently, its research was focused mostly on Ukrainian history and Ukrainian literature. This is because during the Soviet period, and remember when this was created, it was 1970, there were a lot of restrictions on what could be studied concerning Ukrainian history. And they wanted to really make sure that those things were not neglected. So they had to focus on that. When Ukraine becomes independent in 1991, the Institute starts to change and pay more attention to 
Ukraine as an independent state, to politics, to economics. And today there's a wonderful program, Temerly Contemporary Ukraine Program, led by an anthropologist, Emily Channel Justice, which focuses specifically on contemporary Ukraine. So the Institute does several things. It has a wonderful summer school where students can learn Ukrainian intensively in small courses, co-teaches courses during the academic year. It has a very, very active publications program led by Blake Kotsuba, the most important journal in Ukrainian studies internationally, the Harvard Ukrainian Studies Journal led by Kalina Hrin. And it has a very active uh, program of public lectures um, and outreach also in Ukraine. So it does many different things. Yeah. Well, I think our audience definitely has a lot of questions as to what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Eastern Europe, all of the players. It, for anyone that's just not normally familiar with it, definitely overwhelming to understand what, what are all these terms that are getting thrown around. So we want to start off with defining some terms before we get into the, the nitty gritty of what's going on and some of that backstory. So to start things off, would you mind telling our audience what is an autocrat? And also, is Putin one of those? Does he qualify? Does his resume say autocrat at the top? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Uh, well, in my view, an autocrat is a person who governs with very little restraint from representative institutions or from the rule of law. Now, you may have an autocrat which was elected democratically. Uh, most often autocrats are elected in elections that are in principle democratic, but where participation has been greatly restricted either because whoever is allowed to, because only some uh, persons are allowed to become candidates or they're restricted because access to the polls is restricted or because the opposition does not have the opportunity to advertise its role. And, and I know this very well because uh, not only I know Russia, but Belarus and other strongly autocratic states. So kind of formally won the elections, but he's an autocrat because he pays very little attention to what others argue and say and what we have seen in the last days tells us clearly that he mm. was doing this because he his gods tell him to do this and he has not he's not listening to anybody yeah and what is an oligarch and who qualifies to be an oligarch as well yes so that, that's a very interesting word people when they talk about this part of the world they love to use that word i in my research i try to not use it because sometimes people just say oligarch and then they don't look at what is behind it but normally it's used to refer to individuals who have amassed a huge amount of wealth and have used that wealth to gain political power directly mm -hmm. or indirectly. So, for example, in my work on Ukraine, I have, you know, four or five key oligarchs that I that are always reappear in my stories and they all had a way of connecting directly to power. In the case of Russia, their connection to power is a little bit more indirect, maybe because of Putin's role and Putin yeah. not wanting to kind of overshadow him. But it's that combination of economic power and that seg segueing into political power. Interesting. They got they got a lot going on. Hands in a lot of pots, I feel like. Well, moving on to another question, which is what are sanctions? I feel like this has been top of every news story is sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. What actually are they and like how do they work? Yes. So sanctions are measures taken against an actor or a state to try to dissuade that state from acting in the way it is acting, for example, in a military conflict. And the idea here is that there are ways of exacting a, an economic cost or sometimes a political cost on a country or on key players within that country mm -hmm. to dissuade that leadership from 
continuing to engage, for example, in a, in a military action, as in this case. Right. Most often, we tend to talk about economic sanctions. There are other kinds of sanctions, but I think in, in this case in particular, we are talking about economic sanctions. And the idea is to exact, and the idea is twofold. First of all, to make it impossible in the long term to maintain the economic prowess mm -hmm. to continue a war of this kind, but perhaps yeah. more in the short term, to make the cost of such policies painful to key actors. So for example, now, you know, a lot of things have been happening in the Russian economy in the last couple of days with the sanctions. And the key idea here is, can we get those sanctions to punish perhaps Putin directly or more likely key, quote unquote, oligarchs around him yeah. so that they will decide to stop supporting him. And that is, yeah. the, that is the hope and the gamble. And a lot of these oligarchs, quote unquote, oligarchs, they love the West. I mean, they like, they want to, like me, they want to have the best of both worlds. They want to have mm. their Russian subsidies, their corruption, their links to state contracts that are very reasonable, but they also want to have their mansions in London. They want to, they want to have their kids in Oxford and Cambridge or perhaps here. And the idea is to sanction that. Now, the idea that making it impossible for them to travel is going to have an effect, you know, I'm not sure, somewhat, so sure about that, but if you have sanctions that would target their exports, which are very, very profitable, that that could be something significant. Yeah. And obviously, like you just kind of helped paint the picture of really what these sanctions that the U.S. has put on Russia right now, what they look like. But can you kind of give a little bit more context as to like what have we really done in response and maybe other NATO countries to have done in response um, to Russia's invasion, including those sanctions and on the oligarchs. Can you just kind of paint that picture of um, what that looks like and kind of how it's been affecting them? Yes. So let's talk briefly about sanctions and then other things that, that the US and other NATO and the EU have done. In terms of sanctions, the most important things is that things are that the ability of Russian banks to use one particular way to transfer money has been limited. Now, everybody has been calling, had been calling for a overall blocking of Russia from SWIFT. This has not happened. I'm not very happy about this. That's what happened. What the U.S. and others have done is to block a number of Russian, large Russian banks from using that system. And what that means is that they cannot really do anything because if you want to move any money internationally, you need to do it through that system. That's yeah, one okay. thing they have. Another thing they have done is they have frozen access to some of the foreign reserves of the Russian central bank. That's very significant. Yeah. Um, another thing they have done is to close the airspace to Russian aircraft. Not military aircraft only, but for example, now Aeroflot cannot go anywhere because wow. those planes are not allowed. Only, they're only allowed, they're not allowed in Europe, they're not allowed in the US. So this also means that a lot of Russians cannot really go anywhere. And all of these, you know, we are referring to in terms of the economic sanctions, it has had quite a bit of effect because the ruble really plummeted in the last couple of days. Even they had to close their stock market yesterday because they didn't want to open it. So this is having some interesting effect. Now, that's one part of the issue. The, on the other hand, there's measures that have been taken by NATO allies to support Ukraine. Slowly, very slowly. But more NATO states are offering Ukraine weapons. Again, maybe too little and too late, but they're starting to do that. And what is interesting is that you know NATO is a very advanced military alliance, obviously. It has uh, the most advanced weapons. But state countries like Poland are offering Ukraine and are giving Ukraine some of their older technology. For example, 
Poland, which used to be part of the Soviet military alliance, the Warsaw Pact, it still has a lot of planes that were made by the Soviet Union or Russia. Mm-hmm. This may be not, you know, the highest, the newest technology, but they are pretty, they are... They, they work. <laughs> they work. So they are giving that yeah. to Ukraine because the Ukrainian pilots already know how to, fa- how to f- use those planes. And right now, like yesterday, uh, Ukrainian pilots arrived or day before in Poland to pick up those planes, get their quick training, and then use them in Ukraine. So that's that's another part of the of the action. But it's I, in my view, it's too slow. But it's part of the part of the response. Interesting. Okay. Well, the timing was a question we were going to ask too. I, you know, in terms of equipment, that's sort of you know one category. But with the economic sanctions, how long do you know, does it take to feel the effect of these? You know, is this going to be one of those things where, you know, there are a few immediate things, but then really the the push and shove on it takes months for it to really, you know, hurt Russia enough for it to make an impact? Like, what's the what's the timeline vibe on yes. sanctions? So, so the signals, you know, were swift because when, when the ruble went down like 30% in one day and the government to try to drop the ruble, they started to increase interest rates. So the like interest rates like double, which is horrific, like to 20%. All of that are good signals, but for that to trickle down takes months, especially because Russia, and this is my specialty, I'm an energy specialist. Russia has been amassing a huge foreign exchange reserve through the export of natural gas and oil. So they can Mm -hmm. still use that for a while. And that means that for, even with those signals, it's going to take a while for those sanctions to really and that's a problem that we have kind of two tempos going on. The military tempo, the attack of the attack on Ukraine. And, you know, Mr. Putin is really crazy. He's bombing Kiev because yeah. he's obsessed with taking Kiev. That's one kind of speed. And then the, the, the speed of the effect of the sanctions, a totally different speed. Yeah. Well, to one more question, just as far as like breaking down some of these terms. Can you also explain what mutually assured destruction is and how that play, comes into play here? Yes. So mutually assured destruction. It's a term that is used when discussing nuclear weapons and in particular nuclear deterrence, meaning that you having very powerful and credible weapons would prevent another person from using it. And it's really interesting that you brought this in because in another show I was participating today, another guest who is an international, why should we be worried about Mr. Putin's nuclear weapons when our nuclear weapons are strong? That's a very good question. And that exactly brings in what you are discussing about mutually assured destruction so and the issue of deterrence so in theory and you know there were many many people working on this in the 80s and 90s in theory knowing that the u.s could destroy russia and russia could destroy the u.s mutually assured destruction mm-hmm. just that idea should be frightening enough to keep anybody from going for the first strike because they would know that if they do the first strike they will be it's coming back it's coming back that is a beautiful theoretical concept. In reality, you can get a lot of other things happening. You can get smaller strikes. And so the idea is that nuclear weapons are so frightening and that if you do the first strike, there will be a second strike and you will be mutually destructed. That should act as a terrorist. But I think in reality, it's a little bit more, fra- more complex, especially when you're dealing with people like Mr. Putin. Right. Totally. The layers on that. Yikes. Well... Speaking of like Ukraine and Putin putting that together, why is Ukraine such a target for him? Like, why is this like madman being like, ah, Ukraine, that's for me today. Like, what's the deal with that? Um, Mr. Putin has a blotched view of history of what 
being respected in the world stage means. Um, he wants to be considered a great statesman as leader of a great country that is a great power. And that has been very important for him kind of in terms of his self-esteem. And he's also convinced that he needs to restore the Soviet Union to the as much as possible to the size that it had before 1991. He's also convinced that Ukraine does not deserve to have its own state or even to be called its own nation because in, at least in the speech he gave last Monday, before just before the attack, he said that Ukraine cannot be separated from Russia. So he's kind of saying these are our brothers, but we have to force them to stay with us. Moreover, there were some leaks of things Russia was going to publish, but later did not publish, in which basically there was reference to Ukraine, to an independent Ukraine, not subjugated to Russia as a kind of anti-Russia. So he feels threatened, he personally, by mm -hmm. an independent, democratic Ukraine. And for whatever he has said about this conflict being about NATO encroaching on Russia, it's not about that. It's about the desire to control Ukraine and not to recognize Ukraine's right to exist, even as an ethnic state, as a civic state where people of different yeah. ethnicities, native languages, nationalities coexist and support a democratic state. He cannot stomach that. And that is, in my view, why he has attacked. Of course, he has given a lot of uh, reasons for the attack, but I, none of them make sense from my perspective. Yeah. So you mentioned this earlier a little bit, which was, you know, the fossil fuel element, the energy element. Can you kind of explain that a little bit further and how like this natural gas, oil and coal factor really comes into play? Absolutely. So uh, natural gas exports are like natural gas and oil exports are like the largest source of income for Russia and for Mr. Putin. And what is interesting here is that those exports are, they're not just exports. There's like a whole chain of from where you produce it, mainly in Siberia, to whether you're transiting on a pipeline or any other way, or you refine it. Because of the way history worked, in particular because of the way in which Western Europe started to import huge amounts of natural gas and oil in the 1980s, this happened in such a way that a whole infrastructure for natural gas and oil was built not only for the Soviet Union to export it, but in those countries in Western Europe. So you had like a whole generation of people who felt that it was their mission to build this infrastructure to bring that Soviet oil and gas. They who felt that they were doing like a great project unifying Western Eastern Europe, that they were doing a great service by having uh, very reliable oil and natural gas supplies that would overcome any political differences or that could go over the, the, the Berlin Wall and the, I'm getting confused here in English, the the wall separating Eastern Europe and Western Europe. I'm sure you oh, know Iron what. Iron Curtain. Iron the Curtain. Iron Curtain, yes. I was supposed to say the East Steel Curtain were so significant that they created not only a whole generation, a whole culture of cooperation with the Soviet Union, whole infrastructure, whole like contractual systems about how you regulate energy. And maybe now that generation is not active anymore, but it created a, what I would call a kind of chumminess between Western Europeans and Soviets. And when the Soviet Union dissolved, these people on the Western European side continue to look at their partners on the other side as they, they continue to look at them, but as Russians, not as former Soviets. So this connection continued specifically with Russia and it's created kind of very joint. That's why in my book, I talk about the temptation of Russian energy chains because many, many people benefited. Uh, certainly many people benefited in the former Soviet Union, like in Ukraine, there was 
a lot of energy corruption and it, it played a tremendous role. I wrote a, a different book on that a few years ago. Uh, but even in Western Europe, being part of that, huge profits in companies in Switzerland, in Germany, in other countries. And that's why even after 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine previously, and apparently the world had gotten the wake-up call about the Russian aggression, still Western European dependence on Russian natural oil and gas did not go down. It actually increased. And from Nord Stream 1 pipeline, we started to talk about Nord Stream 2. So those are very, very interconnected interests, and they continue to be very important. Speaking of those exports and this dependency, zeroing in on Ukraine itself, how dependent has Ukraine been on Russia for some of these exports? Have they been, is there anything else in terms of exports where it's like Ukraine is really dependent on Russia? Yes, so historically, Ukraine, like after it became independent in 1991 and before it was loosely dependent on Russian oil and natural gas in such a way that uh, many people in Ukraine in the first years of their independence didn't even look at it at Ukraine as a kind of separate energy country. This dependency on Russian natural oil, natural gas and oil, it was sweetened by the fact that for a variety of reasons, Russia offered lower prices than market prices. And those subsidies or those lower prices were like a free for all. For example, oligarchs, as you want to, if you could call them that way, uh, made a huge profit in, for example, buying Russian natural gas at a lower price and then reselling it at a higher price and then sharing the difference. There was a huge system of corruption that all, also served some key political movements in Ukraine that were very important until 2014. And as I mentioned, I wrote a book that was published in 2008, exactly about it, an entire book about energy corruption in Ukraine. So I, can, I could tell you everything about it. So it made people very, very rich. After 2011, so even before Russia's invasion of 2011, there was a gas conflict because in that system, periodically Ukraine would not pay, there would be debts, there would be perhaps uh, cut-offs in supplies. So there was a new contract that tremendously increased the price of natural gas. After that, Ukraine started to try to reduce imports. Uh, one of the ways in which it did it was to maintain the imports of that Russian gas, but it would no longer be called Russian. So it would be like that same molecule of gas from Siberia. It would first be kind of baptized Polish or baptized as German or baptized as Slovak and then sold again to Ukraine as Polish. And in that way, Ukraine has greatly reduced its kind of direct imports of Russian natural gas, but not, not, not totally. Now, it also reduces imports because after Russia's invasion in 2014, Ukraine lost control part of its territory where a lot of industries are located. So that was no longer kind of included. And it also uh, reduced some of those imports because it stopped importing crude oil and started importing refined oil, which is the one that you can actually use. So the statistics for crude oil imports from Russia like went down tremendously, but it started to import a lot of refined oil from Belarus, which is this other country that has a very close relationship with Russia. So it became less dependent, but still still dependent on, on Russia for, for oil and natural gas. Basically had a little disguise on it, a little remarketed moment, but still technically Russian. Interesting. Yes, yes, yes. And, and uh, I didn't mention coal. Coal is also important because uh, coal, and this is uh, in, in, in my book, Russian energy chains, this is the most interesting part, that Russian coal 
actually then becomes part of the production process for steel, which Ukraine has for years and years been like top five exporter. So, and that's another another side of dependency. And, and what is really interesting is that after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, after Russia occupied Crimea, after Russia has supported those separatist regimes and basically taken away like 7% of Ukrainian territory, even after that, Ukraine continued to trade with Russia to imp- to want to be part of that system by being the most important state. Russia tried to redo that, but the Ukrainian side wanted that because being an important transit state, as it was for many years, uh, the transit state for about 80% of Russia's natural gas exports, it kind of gave Ukraine some security guarantees. Takes away from you. Getting gotcha. complicated. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, the other thing too, I, I noticed this morning, like there was some news that came out that now like a bunch of US and other world powers are releasing 60 million barrels of oil, it says, from reserves to ease gas prices from the Russian invasion. So like how really dependent are we on Russia? Will this like help ease prices here? Like how is that going to work? So the what happens with oil, and that's also kind of something I discuss in my book, because of the way oil is and the way you can ship oil internationally and you can move it you know, globally, the American market and the global market are pretty interrelated. So even if we produce enough oil, still we are part of those international markets. And if the prices for oil go up, ours will go up as well. So there will be, I, I can imagine there will be an increase in the price of uh, gasoline, for example. With natural gas, it's a little bit different because those markets because of the way natural gas is as a substance, you cannot move it so easily. Mm-hmm. So those markets are more regional. And in that sense, I, I can expect that there will not be such an increase for us. But there, there's already been a very large increase for Europe because they are mm-hmm. interconnected with the, with the Russian market. And obviously they get their, their gas, a significant amount of their gas from Russia. Right. Interesting. The supply yeah. and demand. Well, speaking of those industries, you know, as a whole and also combining it with sanctions, are they being targeted for some of these sanctions or are the sanctions broader? Like, is there an exact like, all right, like let's, you know, sort of harness or, you know, hold back some of the control here? That's a really fantastic question because you're pointing out that the really, really key issue in the sanctions, not only is it that the new sanctions now are not targeting natural gas and oil directly, but when, for example, the sanction SWIFT restrictions were put in place, they did it in such a way that natural gas and oil would not be affected. Why? Because our European allies depend so much on Russian natural gas and oil. The problem is that is that if we exclude from our sanctions Russia's largest source of foreign income, those sanctions are not going to be very powerful. That's why in the final that's why first that whole chumminess between Western European energy politicians, energy business people, and Russia, we are seeing how dangerous it was in the long term. And secondly, it tells us that um, there's going to be the need for really extreme measures in the short term. I'll, I'll get to that, back to that in a moment. But, and also, there will be the need for a clear move away from fossil fuels in the future, which is something the European Union wants to do. But in the short term, maybe it is that some nuclear power stations need to be allowed to function again. Like in Germany, they stopped functioning in 2011 with Fukushima. Maybe they need to be allowed to function again. Maybe in the short term, there can maybe re- partial return to coal as a way to prevent Russia from using that energy weapon. But in the long term, 
in my view, only decarbonization, like getting away from fossil fuels can help. I, yeah, I, I saw there was a Instagram post that said that too. It was like, if only we just focused on clean energy for the past, you know, 10 years, we'd probably be in a totally different situation right now. Moving on to like this other kind of part of this that I think a lot of people are probably very curious about and a little maybe scared about is this like nuclear threat element that we touched on earlier. Can we kind of dive deeper into that of like, when does that come into play? Just thinking about to this attack on Ukraine right now, it is really expected like the scenarios to come out of that. And at what point does nuclear threats come into play that where we should actually be worried? Uh, great, great point. So Putin made some very puzzling statements, I think, a day ago or a day and a yeah. half ago, saying that Russia was putting its nuclear arsenal in high alert or something like this, and people started to get scared. I'm a little bit scared by that, but I'm even more scared by something else, which is already happening. And, you know, Ukraine uh, has been using nuclear power plants forever, and it, it never stopped using them. Russia, as part of its invasion, has kind of occupied the former Chernobyl power plant, where you have nuclear uh, radioactive waste. It has, there, there are reports that it misusing some of the other nuclear power plants. So the danger here, I would say, is not only or not so much from a possible use of nuclear weapons, but from nuclear waste, from nuclear, other, other nuclear issues there, which is significant. Yeah, how is that significant? Like, what does is, what is nuclear waste really do? And also, what is the significance of them taking Chernobyl? Well, the significance of them taking Chernobyl is that Chernobyl radiation levels continue to be very, very significant. Yeah. The way we control that having a negative impact on, on the entire you know, Europe and the world is by controlling, um, keeping that uh, they have a sarcophagus and they have like a lot of things in place to control that nuclear radioactive waste from getting out. But that needs to be kept under very specific conditions. If you mess with that, that can be very dangerous. And similarly, uh-huh. in the nuclear power plants that are currently used, if you have an attack on the nuclear power plants, if you cannot allow, for example, for the cooling system and the water system to work properly, you can have very dangerous radioactive emissions. And that's what people are getting very, very worried now. I believe there are 14 nuclear power plants in use in Ukraine. And that that is something very serious and very, uh, very worrisome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. To say the least. Well, I think, too, another question, and this is a little bit outside of this particular crisis going on, but is that almost an argument for people to say we should get away from nuclear power? Just looking at, like, what could, you know, ever evolve in terms of other crises? I feel like the offset of that just sounds super dangerous. You know, not to say that, like, anything couldn't happen bad with oil, oil spills and, you know, fires and whatnot that can happen with other resources. But like, is nuclear power in that regard, like more dangerous? That's a really good point because many people argue, you know, when you, when you make a project, uh, a regular power plant or whatever, you have to have like a mitigation uh, plan if something goes wrong. With oil and natural gas and coal, you more or less know, you know, what could go wrong and how you could mitigate it. With nuclear power, uh, errors are very, very rare, but when they happen, it's impossible to know how bad can it get. And that perhaps could be one important reason for getting away from nuclear power. Now, the problem here is how to differentiate from the immediate term, how to like become less dependent on Russian energy so that Russia cannot use those inco- that income and keep us under control, but at the same time move towards that decarbonized future. And I think that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, moving is <laughs> a lot. Can I ask a question into... before we move forward? You have a wonderful yeah. name, Medved. 
What? You have a wonderful Russian last name. I know. Well, it's like technically Yugoslavian. That's where all my ancestry is from. So it doesn't but... it doesn't mean bear in Yugoslavian? It does mean bear, yeah. That's very cute. Yeah. Well, that explains why your it's dad like... likes the California flag with the bear. That's true. That's I true. I love that it's a bear. <laughs> excellent. 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 Nice, Thank nice you. eye. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> well, moving into our audience questions. Again, we had so many awesome questions be submitted and people again are so in tune and trying to figure out this whole situation and we want to help them do that so we have some questions here for you directly from the audience so we'll read through them and see see what we can do for everybody and you know we've, we've talked about a lot of this stuff but I think just kind of like reiterating and maybe summarizing a lot of what we've talked about to start do you believe this might escalate to nuclear world war is one of the questions I do not believe that because I hope still that there's people in the Russian armed forces who are aware how unstable Mr. Putin is and should it come to anywhere cl close to that would take the codes away from him. That's like that's it, my take yeah. my hope. Yeah. What are like are there any checks on on Putin like within the Russian government? How how does that really work? Not too many. Not too many. Yeah. Uh, but I do hope that should it come to something like this, there will be. It was interesting to see Mr. Putin's press. There was a, an event exactly a week ago, Monday, uh, eight days ago. And uh, it was interesting to see the interaction between Mr. Putin and his kind of his cabinet. And uh, obviously they, are, they did not have an independent voice and they did not feel very comfortable ex, you know, showing their ideas either. So it's a problem, but I do hope that in the military, there's at least some people who understand the seriousness of the issue because he has been acting in a very unpredictable way, sadly. Totally. Like, literally, I'm like, what on earth? But another question that we've gotten is, why won't the U.S. put troops on the ground? And what does it mean uh, if they do? The U.S. doesn't want to put troops, troops in the ground first because it doesn't have a alliance relationship with Ukraine in the sense of Ukraine being part of NATO. It doesn't want to put troops on the perhaps even more importantly, because Russia is a nuclear power and they're afraid that if they were to put troops on the ground, it would, it would lead to a massive conflict between Russia and the U.S. So, you know, that is, that is the issue. And what would it mean if we would put troops in the ground? It would be used by Russia probably as an excuse for further, for, I don't know whether for nuclear, but certainly for further escalation. Now, the problem is, yeah. of course, we cannot be always thinking, you know, how not to offend Russia <laughs> because, you know, Ukraine... Right tried not to offend Russia and look where, what happened. There's a fear that it will be used by, as an excuse by Putin to escalate, quote unquote, the threat of NATO expansion has been one of his justifications for trying to have Ukraine as a kind of buffer state, quote unquote, yeah. in, 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 his, in his view of a buffer state. Right. Gotcha. And the next question is, how do you see things playing out with China and potentially Taiwan? This is so interesting, right? Because this is China is like, has been the key direction of our foreign policy trying to con constrain contain China yeah and since January there were a lot of discussions about China supporting Russia how Putin was allowing himself to enter into this adventure in Ukraine because he had Chinese support Putin going there and talking to the Chinese leadership at the Winter Olympics Putin delaying full-scale war on Ukraine until the Winter Olympics were over all of this is very interesting and very important but if you look deeper, I think there are a lot of tensions in the Russian relationship with China. I think there are limits to 
how China will support Russia now. And it was very interesting. Yesterday, I believe there was a statement by the Chinese foreign ministry saying Russia is our strategic partner, not our ally. So they were kind of trying to walk back full support of, of Russia. China is, is very involved in the international economy. It doesn't want to be labeled uh, pro-Russian. And it's interesting because Russia actually depends more on China than China on Russia. So I I think that in the final analysis, Putin will not get the support he was expecting from China. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of things he seems not to have expected from this conflict, sort of the general commentary I've been hearing. But moving to another question is, how will this war impact developing countries? That's a very, very interesting question. Let me see how can I answer it. Well, it is impacting them in a number of ways. First of all, this war is already impacting supply chains and not only yeah. for natural gas and oil, but for example, for wheat. Ukraine is a major producer of wheat, which is very interesting because my native country, Argentina, is also a major producer of wheat. And during the Cold War period, was exporting a lot of wheat to the Soviet Union. But since 10 years ago, Ukraine has had a gigantic green revolution. It's become really a fantastic producer of wheat, exporting it to the for example, to the Middle East, that's going to be a problem. Exporting it mm-hmm. to China, that's going to be a problem. China passed a new law or new regulation allowing it to import wheat from Russia. Maybe that will help, but for the Middle East countries, that's going to be a problem because they have been really dependent on, on Ukrainian wheat. It's going to impact the uh, developing countries in terms of how those countries really will have repercussions from the increase in oil prices. I mean, we may be able to absorb it. We may not like if uh, the gas for our cars is 50 cents more per gallon, but in, a, in the context of a, of a developing economy, that is something that is very significant that can yeah. hear inflation, so that is negative. And a lot of developing countries that were kind of sympathetic towards Russia, they are going to be facing very serious questions about this, not only because of Russia's behavior, but because of the Western coming together in response to Russian aggression. So it's going to affect developing countries, absolutely. And especially in economic terms. Interesting. Yeah, 100%. I have one other question before we give you also the mic to, of course, you want everyone to be able to, you know, find your research and find what you're working on. But just like sort of circling back to Putin and his like desire to sort of recreate the Soviet Union. And I feel like this is definitely something I really have no idea about. Why does he want to recreate this thing that, like no longer exist like what's this like desire like like the maybe like the american thought is that like oh the soviet union the people of like russia did not want that they got rid of it and then like why is this some like new like wet dream of his to bring this back if his people don't want it um maybe the people of the soviet union uh, i I'm, i wouldn't necessarily say that they didn't want the soviet union they didn't want the soviet system they didn't want the soviet economy many many People in Russia, and especially Mr. Putin, felt personally that the the solution of the Soviet Union was a kind of tragedy. And if you look at Mr. Putin as somebody who associated the idea of the Soviet Union with the idea of a strong Russia, so not the Soviet Union as a federation, but a strong Russia, for him, the quote-unquote losing Ukraine, so that is a very key element in the question, but he cannot imagine a strong Russia without an empire. And that is not only Putin, unfortunately, if you go back to Russia, there are so many Russian intellectuals who have had that idea of Russia as inherently an empire. And, and many people, also analysts in the West, have argued that without Ukraine, 
Russia really cannot be an empire in that way. So unfortunately, Putin cannot imagine Russia without being an empire, and that empire cannot exist without Ukraine. And he cannot, he cannot stomach the idea that Ukrainians are a separate nation and that they want to have a separate state and a separate civic nation. Let me emphasize that. That's also like from I, IR101. Putin is accusing Ukraine of having a Nazi fascist yeah. regime that is oppressing Russian speakers, etc., etc. That is not true. I have lived in Ukraine. I have been there many times. Russian speakers in Ukraine are free to speak their language. Actually, most of the communications and books are still printed in, in Russian. But there is a growing sense of civic nation, especially after 2014. Even if your native tongue is Russian, if at home you speak Russian or even at school, you can still love Ukraine as your nation, as a civic nation, as your state. And Putin cannot accept this. Yeah. Can you also, before we wrap everything up, kind of run through of any like updates we should know about as far as you know, where Russian troops are and and maybe any additional sanctions or like, obviously we also will be watching State of the Union tonight to see what kind of updates come from that. But is there anything people should know as far as updates? They're just constantly coming. So it's kind of hard to be so inundated with everything. Can you kind of run through what people really should be taking away and be looking forward to as far as what to watch? uh, Two key updates. Uh, I'm going to start with the more vanilla. So the more vanilla update is that starting on, I believe, Monday, which when was Monday? Like 100 years ago? Monday yeah, ago. 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, quote unquote, negotiations about a ceasefire started in the Belarusian Ukrainian border between a Russian delegation or a Ukrainian delegation. You have to take those quote unquote negotiations with a huge grain of salt because what negotiations can you have when Russia is inflicting huge damage on your civilian population? Many people argue that by invoking those quote-unquote negotiations, Russia is just trying to assuage the international community, saying that it's the negotiations, gaining time. So just keep that in your radar. Your, your listeners should keep that in the radar. The second key update is that Russian troops have found much more obstacles to their taking Ukraine than they expected or, or than Putin expected. That's kind of an update, but it's not. we have seen that since day one. The update is that faced with this frustration, Mr. Putin is really unleashing a violent campaign against civilian populations. The city of Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, was subject to really horrible bombing of civilian populations and of the like city hall in the center of town uh, this early morning. I believe the same thing is happening in Kyiv now. So this is these are desperate measures, but that are going very close to or are already in the area of crimes against humanity. And this is a very important but very sad update. Okay. Well, those updates to watch for, and we'll try and keep everyone else updated as much as we can. But thank you so much for running through all of this with us. It is so beyond helpful, and I think everyone has been needing this. You're a part two of our Ukraine and Russia explainer, and so we're very, very grateful for you. So thank you for doing this. You're very welcome. Let your readers or your listeners know that if they want to learn everything about energy, look at my my book. It's very cheap. It's very easy to read, and it has an appendix with all the oligarchs if they want the players on the oligarchs. Oh, all the oligarchs. I love that. Well, yeah. Can you also give us, we're going to link everything in our episode description. We'll put your book links there and everything, but is there anywhere else people can find you and your research? Uh, Yes. On Twitter, at Balmaceda Energy, one word. And I think that's basically what I try to do is like the political issues, but I look at them from the point of view of economics and markets and not just like oil and gas, but like 
in direct markets like chemicals, steel. So I try to add that dimension to things that sometimes we only look at superficially. Okay. So they can they can look at that and that, that's cheap, that's free. <laughs> and that. they can also read the, the first chapter of my book for free in the in the link that we will send. And it's a very short chapter and it has a lot of provocative ideas that maybe they'll they'll like to think about. I love, I love it. that. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Top stories of the week, you guys. We're back and we are kicking it off with Election 2022, where is Steve Kornacki? I was like, who's the khaki guy again? Oh, khaki meowing. Dude, did you know you're going to see him this week? Like, we have a we have an election day t- today. Wait, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're going to see him. Oh, my God, I'm so overstimulated. I have to go to an event, and then I have to watch Steve Union. I also have to watch Steve Kornacki. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. It's what do I do? I also have um, a dinner in there. This is a busy yeah. day for me, and I didn't even prepare mentally. A lot of Steve Kornacki content coming your way because when the Texas primary kicks off, well, today is as he we're recording, it? I'm sure he is. But when you guys are listening Wednesday and on, the Texas primary would have already passed you. So make sure you're paying attention to those results. We're going to run through kind of what to expect right now. And Texas is kicking off the 2022 midterm primaries right now. So election season is upon us. And basically, voters in Texas will usher in the midterm campaign season with primaries that will test just how far to the right the Republican Party will shift in a state where many in the GOP have already tightened their embrace of former President Donald Trump and incumbent Republican Governor Greg Abbott, Lord Farquaad, who we absolutely despise on this show, appears pretty well positioned to secure his party's nomination for another term, unfortunately, after Tuesday's Tuesday's voting. However, you guys, don't be don't, don't fret because I don't know. I want to see who wins on the other side of the ticket. Like Beto. I mean, he's kind of like a Volkswagen sinker. Like he's kind of positioned up to be the person that automatically kind of wins this primary. And I love the idea of him going against Greg Abbott, and I'm just really excited to see that general election. But basically, starting the campaign with more than $50 million, Greg Abbott has built hardline positions on guns, immigration, and abortion, as we've seen with some of the terrible pieces of legislation he signed into law over the past two years. And the GOP primary for attorney general may be... um, more competitive as incumbent Ken Paxton seeks a third time in o- term in office, and he's facing several challengers, including Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush. <laughs> Another George Bush on our hands, you guys. It's fine. And U.S. Rep. Louis Gohmert, who are vowing to restore order to the office. And Paxton led a failed lawsuit to overturn the 2020 election and has for years faced security fraud charges in an FBI investigation into corrupt allegations. He is broadly denied <laughs> any wrongdoing. Classic. I mean, Classic. all three of these, like, Republicans are total clown cars, as our friend Brian would say. Like, all disasters. Like, I, I don't know, like, pick your pick your poison, like, literally is, literally. like, how I feel about that particular primary. I just, obviously, this guy probably did something, like, terrible with, like, you know, securities fraud. But, like, I'm sorry, most people don't really get what, like, securities fraud is. It's really hard to, like, be like, oh, he did this bad thing. When people, like, don't even really get it. They're like, oh, it sounds like whatever. Like, can you just do something that's, like, so... Can you be like, oh, whoops, I've walked into a bank and tried to rob it. Like, something that everyone can understand is, like, plain and simple bad. Especially the GOP. They're like, securities fraud, who cares? Sounds like a very New that's York. Just a, that's just another Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, classic. Oh, my God. But regardless of that, like, oh, God. 
Democrats face challenges of their own after nearly three decades of statewide losses. Not a great track record, guys. Not a great track record. Former U.S. Rep Beto O'Rourke has little competition for the party's nomination for governor, but he faces uphill odds going into the fall. Lisa, <sighs> I'm hopeful. We got time. Yeah, Texans registered, you guys. If you know anybody in Texas, it's too late, obviously, for this primary election, but make sure everybody you know in Texas is registered for the November election, because we got time to do that. So already thousands of mail-in ballot applications and actual ballots have been rejected under the state's new requirements, aka that super restrictive voting law Lauren Farquad put into the universe. And most of those who were due to voters not including newly mandated identification, which is worrying local election officials that many won't correct problems to have their vote count. So results Tuesday could have lasting implications and after Texas primaries and other states won't resume until May. And that means results here could be viewed for months as a measure of the nation's political mood, which is so interesting. Like the fact that this primary is so early has so many implications and also is i just have so many fucking thoughts about mm-hmm. like this primary is so early and it's intentional because it's catching everybody off guard and like no one's really prepared to vote right now which like i honestly recently just like in the last few weeks even realized texas primary was yeah. today so it's catching absolutely everybody off guard i will you know refer back to our episode with Congressman Swazi, and he makes a really good point about primaries and how both parties, literally on both sides, play to the extremes of both ends. And this is because people don't show up to primaries. But then what happens, you get to the general election, and on both sides, you have people that are more extreme than their constituents, and extreme, again, being a relative word, but further out on the political spectrum than the general mass of constituents. So if you are like constantly looking at the general election across any, whether it's congressional, state assembly, like whatever it is, and you're like, oh my God, this person is so far out. How the hell did we get this person? It's the primaries. It's because people aren't participating in them. So this is a great moment to show up and participate in the primaries. Yeah. And I think the other lesson in primaries too, which is I have just been spewing all over TikTok, like I've said it a thousand times, like actual broken (laughs) record, word for word, I've been saying this, is that like, obviously there's the political ideological scale of which like candidates in the primaries are chosen, but the other important lesson from primaries is that like, this is how you get new blood into office Mm -hmm. and how you kick out shitty incumbents. Because again, you're, if you're a Democrat, you're voting on the Democratic ticket, you don't have Republicans to vote against, you're picking your favorite Democrat to go into the general. And oftentimes in primaries, people don't turn out and incumbents just continue to win those primary tickets and head to the general and then continue to head to office from there and continue to either do nothing or do really shitty work. And primaries are really the only time to kick those incumbents out. So that's why it's so important to pay attention to the primaries and vote and pick grassroots candidates who are actually from your communities and from these districts who actually want to represent their the people and their constituents. So super important lesson. Hopefully everyone is like, wow, primaries. Now I'm excited. 
I am just a primary um, election inspirational speaker. Whoever needs me to come speak on election day or at their campaign event, I'm here and I'll send you my rate sheet. So yeah, anyways, speaking of midterms, we have another story along these lines and it's interesting to say that absolutely because Mm -hmm. the conservative political action conference happened and Trump Trump reemerged big time. Well, first of all, let me just say that I made a little TikTok on this and the comments on this TikTok are freaking hilarious. You guys are literally like giving me life. So anyways, leading Republicans spent much of three days avoiding Donald Trump's grievances, working them all together as they unified behind a midterm message designed to win back the voters, polarizing former president alienated while in office. But, but big but, underline capital letters, maybe even put in italics. The end of the four-day conservative political action conference. <laughs> Mouthful. Trump had reminded those who want to move on that he reminds the most, he reminds, he reminds, he remains the most powerful voice in Republican politics. Like literally he is, I mean, probably made this before I've seen nobody love a dating reference. Like he is like the guy, like the fuck boy that like keeps on texting you and you like kind of can't get rid of him. You think you're like, oh my God, I've blocked him. It's great. And then he's like, ooh, LOLJK, my IG got hacked, meet a new one, now I'm contacting you. Like, that's that's the vibe. And in his keynote address Saturday night, Trump indicated he planned to run for president a third time in 2024. He falsely blamed his 2020 election loss on widespread voter fraud, like, dude, get over it, for which there's no evidence, like, duh. And on Sunday, he was the overwhelming winner of a presidential preference straw poll of conference attendees. And what I want to know is, like, the straw poll situation. I'm sorry, this quote. Okay, let's just get into that. We did it twice and we'll do it again. Bitch, no, you didn't. You did it once. Barely. It's giving delusion. It's giving delusion. And Trump also described Russian Vladimir. I can't speak today. Vladimir. It's like um, Vladimir. He is Voldemort. It's fine. And Voldemort Putin. <laughs> As smart. So, he yeah. Also he also goes- alluded to, by the way, did we talk about this last episode? No, he didn't. He alluded to, he said Putin was smart for invading Ukraine and alluded to that we should do that to Mexico. Like, <laughs> why? Well, anyways, speaking of the straw poll, <laughs> Trump earned... 59%, followed by Governor Ron DeSantis with 28%, which is wild. Also, we like talked about this a few weeks ago, how Trump and DeSantis used to be like buddy buddy. In fact, DeSantis used to like literally kiss Trump's ass, and like now they were beefing because they both want to run for president. But Trump really took the W this week because he is absolutely slaying Ron DeSantis in this poll, which is Honestly, like, they, they both scare the fuck out of me, and I yeah. hate them both, so I, like, literally just, I'm like, okay, like, which fucking loser, small dick bigot are we going to have the GOP ticket in 2024? Because, <laughs> hey. Both insane. What I'd be curious, actually, to speak to, like, some Republicans about is, like, whether this breakdown, like, with Trump winning in here is more because they're, like, afraid of Trump, but actually, like, DeSantis more, or... Like, what, you know what I mean? Like, I'm curious what the the rationale is. Like, or is it like, because Trump already has like a broader image. But honestly, like, I feel like DeSantis has a huge image at this point too. So no, I'll, you know, I'll, tell, I'll tell you this. Okay. 
most of Trump's base and like the hardcore Trumpians are obsessed with Trump and like mm. not even his policies. Like he could literally turn around and do like a s- extremely progressive liberal policy and his base would be like, amazing. So they are not well-versed enough to be like, oh, well, I like Ron DeSantis approach on That's this true. issue. And like, I love this policy passed. It's like, no, they don't think about that shit. Like they know they like Trump and like, sure. They're like, oh, another like GOP Trump supporting governor. That's I'm also support him, but if I'm gonna pick who's gonna run for president again, it's that like obsession with Trump that's gonna like win every time. It's crazy. That's a really good point. Which also you know? just like the only thing I can be as obsessed with is my you know butter wafer cookies over here. So and to just really put the cherry on top of snacking. the CPAC, the CPAC story is the fact that like. Trump also gave praise and a shout out to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that just, if that isn't just like all these names, doesn't just show you like the Republican Party is not like back on track by any means. If anything, like this undercurrent that like got Trump the W in the first place is probably brewing at an even faster and more aggressive rate. Yeah. Sorry, I'm doing yoga over here. Um, But let's let's get into something that's happy. Yeah, this is an exciting, exciting story. If you're happy and you know we'll clap your hands. But just with everything surrounding Russia and Ukraine, just the devastation of like watching all of that news play out and having this story, you know, pop up was just a nice little moment to take a deep breath and be like, okay, this is good. President Joe Biden on Friday nominated federal appeals court judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, the first black woman selected to serve on a court that once declared her race unworthy of citizenship and endorsed American segregation. Introducing Jackson at the White House, Biden declared, I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation. With his nominee standing alongside, the president praised her as having a pragmatic understanding that the law must work for the American people, he said. She strives to be fair, to get it right, to do justice. I will also say the phone call in which he called her, telling her the news, adorable, cried tears, fucking love it. In addition, like, her speech as well. Also, love it. Icon. So good. Yes. No, uh. seriously so good. And that video was just the sweetest little moment. Again, just in a, in a dark time. So we love that. So Jackson would be the current court's second black member, Clarence Thomas. Um, a conservative is the other and just the third in history. And she would replace liberal Justice Stephen Breyer, 83, who is retiring at the end of uh, the term this summer and so she won't change the court 6-3 conservative majority but still definitely a huge milestone to to note here and then just for the future of this nomination as you may know president biden obviously nominated her but she needs to be confirmed by the senate and democrats as we know hold the majority by a razor thin 50 50 margin with vice president kamala harris being the tiebreaker and Party leaders have promised swift but deliberate consideration, and Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin said in a statement that the panel will begin immediately to move forward on consideration of an extraordinary nominee. Senators have set a tentative goal of confirmation by April 8th when they leave for a two-week spring recess. I feel like they just be always on recess. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. They're on the uh, playground. 
No, literally just constantly in the sandbox. And hearings could start as soon as mid-March. And so that timeline could actually be complicated by a number of things, including this Russia invasion of Ukraine and the extended absence of a Democratic senator from New Mexico who suffered a stroke last month and is out for several weeks. And so Democrats would need that vote to confirm Biden's pick if no Republicans support her, which would just be fucking crazy if that's the case. And so once the nomination is sent to the Senate, it is up for the Senate Judiciary Committee to vet the nominee and hold confirmation hearings after the committee approves a nomination and it goes to the Senate floor for a final vote. And Biden and Senate Democrats are hoping for a bipartisan vote on the nomination. I mean, we really want to ring the bipartisan bell. So like, come on, give it to us. But it's unclear if they'll be able to win over any GOP senators after bitterly partisan confirmation battles under Donald Trump. I mean, like, for good reason. Like, sorry. <laughs> South Carolina uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, one of three Republicans who voted to confirm Jackson to the appeals court last year, had pushed Biden to nominate a different candidate from his home state, Judge J. Michelle Childs, who also was favored by home state Rep. James Clyburn, a Biden ally. Graham said earlier this month his vote would be very problematic if it were anyone else, and he expressed disappointment in a tweet Friday, previewing a likely Republican attack line. He and several others on the right said Biden was going with the choice of a radical left. Like, I just, what? It's not. Uh, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said he looked forward to meeting with Jackson, studying her record, legal views, and judicial philosophy, but he noted he had voted against her a year ago. Yeah. I mean, there's just no pleasing you, Mitch McConnell. Like, <laughs> mm. Well, let's give, you know what? Toodaloo to him. Let's give a little bit of background on Katanji. Katanji Jackson was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Miami. You love a Miami moment. She has said that her parents, Johnny and Ellery Brown, chose her name to express their pride in her family's African ancestry. They asked an aunt who was in the Peace Corps in Africa at the time to send a list of African girls' names, and they picked Katanji Anika, which they were told meant lovely one. I love that. That's so cute. That's so, like, I love when there's, like, a name that has, like, a meaning, and then it's, like, that's just, love it. Love it. Okay. Dear Absolutely. future children, that's what you have to look forward to, me thinking of a name without, writing it, without Writing it in my notes, my baby name. Literally. I mean, my name's Child of God, and I could not be further from that, so that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, Mom, and my parents are not religious, so I'm really not sure where we got there. But anyways. Samantha Jackson. Does? Yeah. There's your fun fact. I know. Let me, like... What the You're hell? Gonna, we're going to be like, yeah, Maddie, it's, my name is Blue and Samantha's child of God. <laughs> <laughs> so, Feels about right. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, Let's... but Jackson traces her interest in the law to when she was in preschool. Wait, that's so freaking cute. And her father was in law school. Wait, I, oh, oh, oh. So I mean, it's like, getting I this, cuter. It's getting Just cuter. like when I read it out loud and then I think about that, we were just like, I just... Oh, it's so cute. And they would sit together at the dining room table. She with coloring books and he with law books. I'm obsessed with daddy's girl. Like, this makes me want to cry of happiness. Her father became an attorney for the county school board, and her mother was a high school principal. A brother, nine years younger, served in the army, including in Iraq, and is now a lawyer, too. I love when something's a family affair. Like, I just... That is... so cute. She's living her dream. I know. And honestly, my favorite part, too, about that video, where Biden, like, gives her the call. Like, you can just hear in her voice like just it was just like a such a genuine mm-hmm. sweet moment and I like it made me so happy but yeah 
anyways that's our like little story to end on a little positive moment Mm -hmm. and obviously we're recording this on a tuesday which is when the state of the union is happening tonight so by the time this is released it will have already happened and that's why we didn't really report on it we're gonna see what happens there but Mm -hmm. i'm sure she's gonna get more shout outs there so we're excited to see to see her at the state of the union you know if you didn't get a chance to catch it on Tuesday night, then you should go back and make sure you watch it because it's always a good moment. And honestly, Biden, I feel like might have some little like chirpy, chippy moments. And I can't wait to hear. That is it for this week. Those are our top stories. Make sure you go get your four bottles of wine for $29.95. And if you don't, like I just, again, I don't know. But no, go get your bottles of wine for $29.95 for delivered right to your door. And that is a deal, you guys. So go check it out. Also, make sure you go get tickets for our event in New York City on March 12th. Or if you do have friends in New York City and you aren't there, then why don't you shoot them that link and see if they're interested. Also, Brand Ambassador Program, sign up at the link in our episode description. And also go check out our summer internship if you're interested. But that is it for this week. Thank you for all your amazing questions about Ukraine and Russia. And hopefully all of these two episodes were, were super helpful for you guys. Mm-hmm. If you guys have continued to have more questions about the Russia and Ukraine situation, keep DMing us and keep asking us questions, comment, however you want to reach us. Um, and we'll do our best to answer them or forward you to resources that can help answer those questions for you. But have an amazing week. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.